All right. Hi. Hi. I'm so excited. I say that every time. I just feel tired and broken down. <laughs> Why, <this> Paul? <laughs> Not less than two hours ago, I watched American Psycho. For those of you who may have forgotten, that's Paul DeGurse. And that's Jillian Willems. We're the host of Monkeys and Playbills, a show where we review Broadway musicals that ran for 100 performances or fewer on Broadway, from opening to closing, not counting previews. For the record, Daphne has just asked us to maybe want to, do we maybe want to try that again? We both oh, yeah. said no. I see no way we can improve that. <laughs> no, I think maybe... I heard somewhere that most people, when they find a new podcast, they go right back to the beginning and right. start listening from, from the very first episode. That's why I do it. And so I want people in five years to <laughs> go back to episode two and hear that intro. Well, that's... I can't ever imagine us doing a better intro than that. <laughs> Daphne, we could do it again if you want a worse <laughs> intro. Is that what you would like? <laughs> I have a hollow, broken producer. Please send help. <laughs> <laughs> what are we talking about, guys? Today, we are talking about 2016, 2016's? 2016's Duncan Cheek Spectacular American Psycho, starring Benjamin Walker on Broadway. It ran for how many performances? Uh, previews began March 24th, 25th, 16. Wow, sorry. Opened April 21st, 2016. Fantastic. And then... Promptly closed June 5th, 2016, after 27 previews and 54 regular performances. Oh, that's not the best thing in the world. Yeah. Before that, it had a um, a London run, I believe, mm -hmm. a West End run. 2013. 2013 with Doctor Who. Yes, yep. Matt Smith. Matt Smith, yep. Which is cool, I guess. Yeah. That's also the only cast recording that's available. So when it came to the initial process for me of listening in my car... Um, I've listened to that recording a lot. Mm -hmm. um, Matt Smith sounds fine. Sounds nice. Yeah, There's, he sounds um, like he's talking. That's yeah. He's good. He, he, he talks well. He's a good talker. Yeah, he sings in an American accent. Yeah. Uh, Benjamin Walker is a good talker, too. Yeah, he's an all right talker and an even better looker. <laughs> Which is good because he spends <laughs> almost all of this show in his underwear. Correct. We should talk about who directed, who wrote the book. Yeah, let's break this show down. Well, let's talk about who wrote it. Who wrote it is a great place to start. This show, the music and lyrics were written by Broadway gold, golden boy, Broadway Wunderkind, <laughs> Duncan Sheik, yes. um, who just a few years before just crushed it, took Broadway by storm with uh, Spring Awakening. Mm-hmm. So that was 11 years before. It was 11 years yeah. before. Yeah, 2005, I think. And then he also had like a rock album. David had to tell me because I, I didn't right. know. I didn't know about Duncan Sheik's life before musical before theater. Before Spring Awakening. Well, why would I? I guess, I suppose Pop so. Pop music yeah. doesn't exist to me. <laughs> right, only Spring Awakening. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which I didn't even listen to anyway, so... So yes, he wrote the music. He also wrote the lyrics, which is something he didn't do for Spring Awakening, ah. but did do for American Psycho. Save that for later. That becomes important. The book was written... Roberto Aguirre Sacasa. Who's a very, very fascinating man. Um, what's most fascinating about him, at least in my eyes, is that he is the chief creative officer currently of Archie Comics. He's a... Um, a comic guy, initially. He wrote a bunch of comics. Some of them are nice. Some of them are okay. 
you'd think I'd be a bigger fan of this guy, given my incredible love of comic books. Um, I'm okay with him. He was also brought in to fix the book, fix in quotation marks, for mm-hmm. Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. Rescue. Um, to rescue Spider-Man yeah. Turn Off the Dark. <laughs> this is detailed in an um, incredible book called A Song of Spider-Man by the original book writer, Glenn Berger. Um, and someday, I'm sure, on a very special bonus episode, we will eventually get to talk about Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. But he's the, as the chief creative officer of Archie Comics, he's the big mover and shaker behind all of those. And that, to me, ties into his work here even more. Mm. But we'll talk about that. Great. I also think we should touch on who wrote American Psycho, the novel. Yes. So that was Brett Easton Ellis. Uh, it was written in 91. Mm-hmm. About 1989, right. my birth year. Thank you very much. Also the birth year of The Little Mermaid, yes. I think. Correct. <laughs> Are you The Little Mermaid? No, never mind. <laughs> no. And uh, Brett Easton Ellis is still alive and therefore probably had to see this musical. <laughs> there's, also, there's also a movie that's been made out of um, mm. Brett Easton Ellis' mm-hmm, novel, mm-hmm. a movie that was made in the year 2000. With, um, that was starring uh, Christian Bale. Mm-hmm. It was quite popular at the time, from what I understand. A lot of people really like it. I hadn't seen it in a long, long time. Um, I saw it when I was like a teenager. So I watched it again a, um, a couple weeks ago. I didn't like it as much as I had back then, but it's kind of nice. I like it. I like okay, it. Okay, I'll I tell you why it. I like the movie. Maybe I should just yeah. say a few things why I like the movie and the book, because I also read the and book. And I've never read the novel. So I really enjoyed the book because... It, the tone of the book really immerses you. So it's sort of this stream of consciousness style, which takes a little while to get used to, but I actually think is a really effective tool in addressing the themes of the novel. So that's why I like the novel. I really like the movie because it moves along at a clip. Mm -hmm. So the way that the book kind of moves slower, obviously, because you're reading like, whatever. Um, but, (laughs) But when you are watching this movie, I feel like it hits the plot points quickly, which I appreciate. Like, I don't feel like it drags on. Reasons why I like the musical. Well, before, before you get into that, <laughs> I, want to point, I want to point out, this is something you might not realize. Um, this is a little bit, of, little bit of deep cut trivia for you. Both the book, the, no, the, book, the movie, and the musical, all um, it's a very subtle point they make that um, working on Wall Street in New York in the 80s was like being a psychopath. Mm-hmm, it's like mm-hmm. it's not it's not super not super explored but that's um that's kind of like a secondary theme right and i i think i get that and maybe i get that more with wolf of wall street too because yeah. they do address that as well i, should, I wish i just watched wolf of wall street <laughs> so synopsis yes i have a few okay short ones great so there's one from Wikipedia. Here, why don't you try a few, then I'm going to try one off the top of my head. I, I love it. A couple it. Hours I love ago. this yeah. exercise. Okay, should I go first? You should go first. American Psycho is about a man named Patrick Bateman, who is an investment banker in New York in the late 80s. He is a dick and he likes to kill people, but also his personal assistant is in love with him. And is he kind of in love with her? Question mark. Also, his mom is Alice Ripley. And maybe <laughs> it was all in his head. I think that's all of it, right? That's really good. Thank you. You actually did a gentle spoiler in your synopsis. Oh, shoot. I I hope I didn't spoil it for anyone. That's okay. Okay, fair (laughs) enough. What does Wikipedia have to say? So Wikipedia says it is, 
quote, set in Manhattan during the Wall Street boom of the late 80s, American Psycho is about the daily life of Patrick Bateman, a wealthy young investment banker who's also a serial killer. Hmm. That's just what it says. And that's specific to the musical. Right. Which I thought was really interesting. And then there's one on stage agent. Okay, yeah. And it says, based on the novel by Brett Easton Ellis, American Psycho is an intriguing and disturbing take on yuppie disillusionment and greed set to a 1980s rock score. Yeah. Those are both accurate to the show that I saw. I don't hear either (laughs) of those and go, that's not correct. The score was definitely 1980s. The -hmm. score was definitely rock. Mm -hmm. There was definitely a man named Patrick Bateman in it. And everyone was disillusioned. Everyone was disillusioned, myself included, after watching it. It's worth saying, our intent here is never to tear down shows or the people who worked on shows. Um, It's hard to put up a show. It's hard to put together a show for, there's usually 10 or 20 or a million reasons why shows don't go up, Mm -hmm. don't go the way that their creators think they would. And so our intention is very much to explore why this show didn't go as planned, what went well, what went wrong, and delve into any kind of context there. That said, American Psycho on Broadway is no good. It stinks. It was very bad. So let's get into some of the reasons why. Yes. I'd like to talk about the music and the lyrics first. Then we'll get to the book. Great. Um, Because I can actually start positive with the music personally. Okay. I really like the music. Hold on, hold on. And I Jill's giving me a look here. I'll get into that. I Can you hear my eyes rolling, (laughs) everyone at home? I think that just from a compositional standpoint... Duncan Sheik continues to be the king of writing pop hooks and hooks that actually sound like pop songs rather than being written in a musical theater style. Um, there are a few songs in here that aren't, are disasters in that regard. Um, things that come to mind are like the end of act one, the Christmas song. The a mistletoe mis- alert, which mistletoe I wrote alert. literally is the worst song I've ever heard in <laughs> that, my entire so life. I will concede that. That's the worst song I've ever heard <sighs> in my entire life. And I want to make it clear as well here that I'm not talking about the lyrics. Mm. But just the the music mm-hmm. itself, I'm a big fan. Like it a lot. Um, it also it's it really it really captures my my personal aesthetic. I like the '80s. I like drum machines. Um, I like electronica. If this was an album with different lyrics, I would pop it on in the car. Okay, I I know that about you, and yes. in a lot of things that we've worked on together, yeah, your sound design tends to lean in that direction unequivocally, yeah. and it's very effective when it's used correctly yeah do you think it might have been overused here yes okay because that's my that's my feeling as well there's a couple of things this is going to tie into a much bigger problem i have with the show one is that there's so much of it is this is the 80s this is the (laughs) 80s everyone laugh because this is the 80s which definitely isn't a thing in the real book, in the book itself, because the book, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, was written a couple years before. Mm-hmm. And it isn't even that much of a thing in the movie. It's more of a thing than it is in the book. There's some parts of the movie that are like, hey, remember the 80s? Those were funny. Right. But nothing like this. Like in your face, you mean? So in your yeah, face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that the lyrics, Duncan Cheek's lyrics are once in a while brilliant. Once in a while he stumbles on a really brilliant line, but almost across the board just a disaster. Simplistic I, to the point of a disaster. Do any lyrics come to mind? Well, they made it very clear that there was nothing ironic about their love for Manolo Blahnik. Manolo Blahnik. <laughs> um, somewhere near the top of the show. Um, yes. They made that extremely clear. I, was, I found myself wondering, well, I can tell that they love Malono, Manolo, Manolo Blahnik. <laughs> 
but is that sincere or is there is that ironic? Is there something ironic about that? Right. Lucky for us, they answered it time and time again. Yeah, they did say. <laughs> they did say. There's nothing remotely ironic about our love. Okay, <laughs> no, no but can I, I, I actually do want to do a shout out to the yes. gasping section in that song. <laughs> yeah. It, to me, is actually quite remarkable. Okay, how? So, from like a singing perspective, to do an audible gasp. Yeah. Like that, it's not easy in the middle of a song for like, I guess, two phrases or something. And then they do it in a canon. Yeah. Like, it's pretty impressive to me. There's There's some good stuff here. Um, it's few and far between though, in my opinion, especially when it comes to the lyrics, that song comes to mind. There's, um, when they're singing about how much they love hard bodies. They should have honestly just done Olivia Newton-John. They could have done Olivia Newton-John because besides Duncan Sheik's score, they also use several pop songs from the eighties. Phil Collins. Phil Collins. Um, obviously Huey Lewis. Mm-hmm, and that makes mm-hmm. sense at the very least. That's very iconic from the movie. Absolutely. Um, but a lot of the time it's these kind of bizarre, for lack of a better word, uh, Duncan Sheiky, like, choral arrangements, Broadway choral arrangements of these With 80s With all hits. the sus chords. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just nonstop. Yeah, and like every, if I had four voices, I was saying that they're like, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, all singing <laughs> at the same time behind um, Jennifer Damiano singing um, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, which is, once again, kind of cool for a concert. Yeah. Um, very bizarre. So, yeah. is... Is the music the problem here? In my opinion, no. Are the lyrics the problem here? Yes, the lyrics are one of the problems. 100%. 100% lyrics. I would say, after hearing you speak so passionately about your your (laughs) love of this music, I don't hate it as much. Love of some of this music. Okay, sure. About (laughs) just over half of this music. Right. Yeah. And I... I the closing song's of... a banger. The closing song's friggin' great. This is not an exit. Oh, I'm here for it. I'm rocking out in the car. Really? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. You disagree? <laughs> <laughs> not entirely. Yeah. So I think, I think listening to this, I should say we should again specify the London, London cast, cast recording. recording. Yeah. In listening to it, in isolation from any of the imagery associated with this musical, yeah. I hate it. I hate ha! the music by itself. Great. The only way I ever want to consume it is if RuPaul covers it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, totally. that's the only way I want to hear this. Yeah. Or I want to be shopping to it. I see. I gotcha. Yep. And also, n- there's not a lot of variety as far as tempo. No, there's definitely Time not. signature. Like, there's Just texture. Like yeah. they, take, they take 180s texture a lot. And that can make someone tired. Yeah. Or they do a very bizarre, maybe it's a throwback to an 80s, um, an 80s reference I don't get, but they do friggin' mistletoe alert or they do by the seaside at the Hamptons, you know, or, right. and it's very, at its best, it's like a, um, it's like an, un, an uncovered cure track at its worst. It's like Duncan Sheik with a Casio keyboard on the Samba setting. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> me exploring like a keyboard as a child like exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's a review uh yeah. again new york times totally the title of this review is american psycho hits broadway so smooth so rich so ruthless by ben brantley okay um so this is from end of april 2016 great and in it 
uh, Ben Brantley says, American Psycho turns out to be one of those musicals that send your thoughts a-wandering even as you watch them. And I kind of feel like the music <laughs> might have something to do with that. Absolutely. I have a very hard time focusing on this um, on this show. Paul, it's very important that you tell me out of uh, 10 playbills, how many monkeys are you giving this music? It's going to be way higher than you. Six playbills out of 10 for just the music. Mm -hmm. It would be even higher if everything was the opening number and the closing number, which I like and you don't. Three out of 10 for the, um, for mm -hmm. the lyrics, which are disastrous. And once in a while, because just... Duncan, she keeps it so simple. Mm -hmm. And once in a while, that simplicity is like, all right, awesome. But most of the time, he's rhyming, I can't remember what it is now. He's rhymed something with the body of hard body. <laughs> but he puts the, it's like hard body. Oh. And it's this very, the emphasis ends up on the wrong syllable. and makes it right. sound like a different word. And it's <laughs> like he's never written a song in his life. Yeah. <laughs> so that's my opinion. Average that out. You get, I don't know what, four and a half monkeys out of 10 playbills. Four and a half or yeah. Let's call it four and a half. Okay. I feel comfortable with that. How about you? And I actually, I would give the music a five. Yeah. And the lyrics, a, yeah, two and a half, three. Yeah. I think you lose a monkey every time they say mistletoe alert. Yeah. Which is a lot. So yeah. <laughs> you're left with, I don't know, minus 10 monkeys for those lyrics alone. That made it into the end. Hey, there was a really enthusiastic soprano on that song, okay? <laughs> and she was great. And, and she I deserves say that as an enthusiastic absolutely. soprano. <laughs> she deserves the month of Broadway paycheck that she got for being on this show. Correct. So what about the book now? I don't know if you remember a musical called Silence. Oh, yes, I do. Silence is a um, off off Broadway musical, if I um, recall correctly. I don't even think it ever found its way off Broadway. Mm -hmm. It's a parody of the idea of movies adapted into musicals, in that it is a um, musical adaptation of *The Silence of the Lambs* of Jonathan Demme's *The Silence of the Lambs*, one of the greatest movies ever made. Mm -hmm. um, and it is extremely vulgar. I don't like it one bit, <laughs> and I don't think it's done with any skill. And I think it plays on all the salaciousness of the Silence of the Lambs that people like to remember without... It, it parodies movie, it parodies musical adaptations of movies, but in picking such a good movie, mm -hmm. it, um, it really misses the point in a huge way. Yes. That's... There we go. Mini, mini episode right there on Silence. Great. Yeah. So I would say that I think what they did to silence, they could have gotten away with doing to American Psycho. Right. So they sometimes were very tongue-in-cheek yep. through this book, okay? Sometimes they were like on the nose and yeah. that's when it really worked. Yeah. You could hear the audience laughing at those moments and they mm -hmm. were with those actors yep. through the whole that whole kind of, yeah, that really silly way of honoring this book and movie yeah but then sometimes they were like no it's serious like we're sweeney todd or yeah whatever I, I absolutely know what you mean yeah and so i think that disjointed approach to the book made me very confused how much of that as well do you think comes from the uh, the character of gene 
This mm. is Patrick Bateman's love interest. Um, her part is expanded a lot for the musical. Yeah. And it isn't expanded in any way other than for her to pine after Patrick and find him fascinating. Yeah, this musical definitely does not pass the Bechdel test. <laughs> <laughs> it literally does not even pass a special version of the Bechdel yeah, test yeah. where people talk about something other than Patrick Bateman. <laughs> <laughs> Not even about dudes, literally about one, one dude. <laughs> dude. Oh, yeah. Anyway, maybe a better way to say that is that's that is the biggest symptom of what you're describing to mm-hmm. me is trying to make a very tongue-in-cheek satire into a um a Broadway to fit making trying to make it fit a Broadway structure. And so you've got that last 20 minutes where it's just Gene and Patrick Bateman hanging out mm-hmm. and they sing and He's sad and conflicted and compare and contrast with the movie. As I said, I didn't love, love the movie to death, but it has this tour de force ending Mm -hmm. where Patrick kind of descends into madness. And then it's like, oh, but did any of that actually happen? Right. And this one just kind of feels like it peters out really slowly. It does. Yeah, I agree. Do you feel like I do in that some of the scene work was actually really good? Like some of the script? I think some of the script was really good. I think... Yeah, no, I have nothing more to add to that. I think some of the, I think some of the scene work was really good. Just like some of the songs are really good. Mm-hmm. You do have pros here, who have written really beautiful things in the past, and they wrote some really beautiful things here. Yeah, and some very bad things. If we're coming back to why this is a, in my opinion, a weird adaptation, like how you can have in the same musical, like the the card song right off the top there. Oh yeah, where they all um. Literally, they're singing their whole, singing their guts out about their cards. And the whole, the whole bit is, remember, in the movie, right. they had cards. Remember, that was a bit in the movie. <laughs> and it's a great so, And it's a great bit in the, in movie. the movie. It's very funny. It's very bizarre. Another weird thing about the book. It takes Patrick Bateman a long time to kill someone, eh? And in the novel, too. Really? Because like, in the I movie, it happens way sooner. It's halfway through the book, if I remember wow. correctly. Because I think I was reading it, and I thought to myself like where's all the murder yeah like where's the psycho part of american because it's like a half an hour into the movie he um kills his first guy he right. does the um does the huey lewis thing um and that doesn't come till the tail end of act one homeless guy first right yes the homeless guy first yeah but i remember watching the movie after i'd listened to the soundtrack and knew kind of where it came and mm-hmm. being really surprised by how soon the huey lewis kill comes in the movie yes and it, it takes so long it's like after literally an hour and 10 minutes so, Paul, for the book, out of 10 playbills, how many monkeys are you giving this book? Five. Okay. One off for weird pacing. Mm-hmm. But also an addition of one acknowledging my personal bias of not liking the Riverdale style. Okay. Mm-hmm. How about you? I would give it a six. Great. I just think it's so hard to, to give this book... A grade when, like we've talked about before, a lot of times the book, the way we feel about that also has to do with some other things. Yep. Yep. So I'll land on a six for that. I think that's fair. It's not the worst thing in the world. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about the production. It was directed by Rupert Gould. Great. Good old, good uh, old English, uh, 
I think actor initially and then became a director. Sure. Directed Judy, the, the oh, biopic. Sure. Yes. Yeah. And a bunch of classics. Okay. Um, for different theater companies. Possibly an interesting choice for American Psycho. Exactly my thought. <laughs> yeah. Do you have anything to say about the the direction specifically? Only that I think that maybe any qualms I have with, with the direction tie into our complaints about the book that um, there's a tone problem. Oh, yeah. They're trying to um, trying to figure out whether this is satire, whether we want to be really invested in um, Patrick and Jean, and it ends up being neither. Yeah. I think I agree. Yeah. I almost feel like, like, did they need a director at all? <laughs> or did they have one at all? Like, there are some moments where I'm like, oh, this feels like the choreographer was like, okay, now everyone move over here, and then this is where the scene happens. And then this is where the scene ends, and now back to the dancing. Mm-hmm. So I wonder, I don't know how much this director really did. Especially with a, um, like, a powerhouse composer attached mm-hmm. to it, um someone who wasn't quite at the height of his power yet, but a soon-to-be powerhouse book writer. You wonder if maybe maybe the director even got, uh, kind of got wiped out a little bit. Yeah, I wonder you know? that too. Yeah. Definitely not a, not a distinct stamp from a direction standpoint. Yeah, correct. What about choreo? So the choreo was done by Lynn Page. Okay. And I have to admit, I didn't know that name... Off the top of your head. Yeah, off the top. And I looked at her website, and she has done a lot of commercial work. That makes sense. Which I think is actually a perfect fit. So she has this sort of crossover between this, like, Broadway, you know, style, but also this really brand-heavy movement. Which makes good sense, especially because you don't have... A Broadway team necessarily, as we just discussed. You have mm-hmm. a non-Broadway director. You have Duncan Sheik, who is like the, the bad boy of Broadway, for yeah. <laughs> lack of a better. But like kind of, right? With Spring Awakening is like, fuck everything. Right. We're doing it all different. <laughs> and he definitely doesn't approach from a... He doesn't acknowledge any kind of Broadway tradition when he writes. Yes. Um, so it makes sense to have a choreographer coming from the same... Yeah. From a similar path. On her website, it also said something to the effect of, labeled the only choreographer to work with Kanye West and Stephen Sondheim in the same year. What's that what, what's that a word called, please? Those the I could not believe it. And the, the way the it was phrased, <laughs> I was like, this yeah. <laughs> yeah. Something's just weird about claiming that, you know? <laughs> she got the got the Kanye gig. She got and the then a few Kanye months gig. later booked the Sondheim yeah. gig. Sondheim saw whatever they and did. And was like I just did it. I need. I just got it. (laughs) (laughs) So as far as the the choreo goes in this show, I think it's appropriate. Great. (laughs) Yeah, I think I think it's appropriate. I think it waxes and wanes between this thing of like wanting to be really um, interesting and a little bit contemporary musical theater, but then also has those bits of like true jazz and pop like movement styles. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes I'm confused. Like, you know, why are there all these bodies on stage? Like what for, you know? Yep. 
And I think that might also tie in a little bit to the tone of the show, because if you're saying Patrick, we're inside Patrick Bateman's head right now, here's what's happening in his head. Here's all the people. But you actually don't get that. It's not clear. Yeah, yeah, that's. That's accurate to the way I experienced it as well. I don't know nearly mm-hmm. as much about choreo as, as you do, obviously. When someone is choreographing something that is a tribute to the 80s, and they do, um, like, thriller hands, <laughs> how does that make you feel as a choreographer? Okay, I love a call to a thing that is recognizable. Yeah, yeah you, love a, you love a smart tribute. Yeah, you love a smart call a out. out. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I don't hate it. What I... What I don't like is the overuse of that. Yeah. So if you're seeing certain images repeatedly in this choreo. Right. That you're like, oh, there's another thing that I could have done. Like if a person is sitting there who's not a choreographer, who's like, I could have thought of the thriller hands. Yeah, absolutely. You know. Yeah. Great. And now we're going to do thriller hands for eight beats. (laughs) Then we're going to do like an MC Hammer. And we're going to, right? Yeah, seriously. (laughs) And I think... Finding inspiration in that is great. It's wonderful. And it helps place us, but... So I don't have, like, a ton more to say about the choreo or... Yeah. I would like to propose that we give a Monkeys and Playbills rating to the choreo before we move on to the design. Yes, I would agree with that. Did we Monkeys and Playbills the direction? No. Let's put them together. Fantastic. I I actually think we can do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Paul, out of 10 playbills, how many monkeys are you going to give the direction and choreography? Four to the direction, five to the choreography, 4.5 altogether. I feel like I'm being much kinder than my opinion, than my experience on this musical has been so far, but there we are. Okay. I am going to say a five and a half altogether. Yeah. Yep. That's my feeling. We're both being much more generous about this than I think we were expecting. (laughs) Yes, I agree. Again, I listened to the album first. And so in my mind, I had a very specific vision of what it was going to be and Mm -hmm. how bad it was going to be. Right. And then I actually ended up being pleasantly surprised by some aspects of the direction and the choreography. So very fair. Let's talk about the design. The design's awesome. Oh, it's the design's so good. so good. It's so good. And yeah. actually, that so that Tony year, yeah. they got, uh, American Psycho got two nominations. Yes, they did. Both design related. Yep, they got best best set and best lights. Yep. Yep. Correct. And got shut out. Other than that, we'll talk about that in the final <laughs> section because they just got riggedy wrecked um, in a hard year. Um, in a really both of stacked both of our year. first two musicals, we've talked about these musicals going up against stacked years. I think you'd be hard pressed to find a not stacked year since like. What was the year with um, American Idiot in Memphis? Twenty ten, maybe. Yeah. Twenty eleven. That was not a great year. Okay, sure. The year the Memphis one. Anyway, welcome back to American <laughs> Psycho. <laughs> so, um, design. Uh, <laughs> There's a lot to love in this design. Scenic design by yeah. S. Devlin. What a cool name. Costumes by Katrina Lindsay. Katrina mm-hmm. Lindsay, who did Harry Potter and the Cursed Child costumes. Right. Yeah. How many pairs of bloody tidy whities do you think that Katrina Lindsay had to go through before she found the correct pair? She's like, oh yeah, this blood oh. spatter. 
Pattern. Um, is producer what Daphne I want. is indicating two. It was two pairs. Two pairs. So we can move on from that. Very okay, good. Good. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Lighting by Justin Townsend. Justin Townsend, bomb work. Beautiful work. Moulin Rouge, jagged little pill. Oh, that checks out. Especially um, the Moulin Saint Rouge. Saint Joan. Yeah. yeah. How did you feel about all the strobes? If I were there in person, I might have stronger feelings about the yeah. use of strobes, but they were exciting I was there when for you're it. watching absolutely. it on absolutely. TV. <laughs> yeah. I liked it quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and then sound design we should touch on as well. Yeah. So Dan Moses Schreier. Yeah. It's probably, I'd say sound design is the one that we, not having the resources or even existing right now to be able to go to New York and see these shows in mm-hmm. person. Sound design is probably the one we can speak to the least, unfortunately. Correct. Yeah. Um, it seemed like there was a lot of cool stuff going on. A lot of really ambient, um, yeah. like scraping metal, knives. Yeah. Yeah. And apparently I read um, a comment. I always read the comments on YouTube videos. There you go. Yeah. Those are fun. And, <laughs> and this person commented that from the moment you walked into the uh, Schoenfeld Theater, the ambience, like you're talking about, was there from a sound a, I read a review that talked about this as well. Yeah, yeah, so I think that's something to be commended, but I think it's also coming out of a time where that became, like, cool Absolutely. again. Absolutely, yeah. Like, I guess, Waitress, they do, like, a the scent of baking through okay. the theater, like fresh baking, that's and then once cool. on this island, they fully cooked on stage. So what did you like about the set, Paul? I liked the bit at the end of Act 1 where he killed the guy and a screen came down and it was like he was splashing blood when he was stabbing him. Mm-hmm. It looked awesome. That's good. <laughs> that's I'm my, happy for you. That's my very professional, criti- insightful critique of what I liked about the set. <laughs> good. I I actually, there's a moment in Act 2 that I really loved. Yeah. So the set to me had these really beautiful lines that are the 80s aesthetic that I actually love. Yeah, yeah. And so there's this moment where these panels that are the whole back wall are being yeah. turned around with the ones that have blood on them get turned so yeah. that it's all like a clean slate. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. I love when the set can help tell the story in that way. One thing we should talk about in the design that I didn't get, it might even end up removing a, um, removing a point for me. What was the deal with the handheld mic? What's going on there? I don't know. I... Sometimes didn't mind it, and then yeah. sometimes I was confused. Mostly I was just confused. I didn't... I was like, is this a Duncan Sheik thing? Is it... Because Spring Awakening is all <laughs> right. about the handheld mics. It's Maybe a very sensitive part of Maybe that's in his rider design. as well. Maybe he's like, hey, I would love to sign on for this project, but I just have to let you know about this before we go ahead. And Hand this poor, helps. very British director is like, great. Whatever. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> fine. Yeah. <laughs> I need handhelds. to go make an Oscar-winning movie right now. So yes, handhelds. Yeah, that was medium. I didn't. I I just didn't get it, and then it disappeared after about the first third, right? I think so. I don't know that they ever came back. No. I wanted to ask you as well about the revolves. Were there two? There were two, one okay. on either side, and I kind of like that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it really has a lot of potential for yeah. this story specifically. I wonder if it wasn't used enough. Yeah, that would be my one complaint would be a lot of really cool things possibly not being used to their fullest extent. Yeah. Like there was that, there was all these cool, it was very fascinating, the projections during the mm-hmm. um, during the orgy scene when he's yeah. having sex with the two. Um, Is it Common Man? Yeah. When that's yeah. happening? Love that song. Love that song. Oh, Paul. I know, I'm sorry. I'll still be your friend, but. <laughs> I really like it. It's an earworm. I'll say, I'll give I don't, it that. I don't love the content. I don't love the lyrics. 
just the song itself. I'm like, freaking banger. Here we go. <laughs> I would not describe it as a banger, but that's fine. I see what you're getting at. Um, but they had all these projections of mm-hmm. like silhouetted people engaged yeah. in various like sex acts. They almost looked like the outline of when a in a crime like a dead scene. body. Yeah, yeah. So I actually thought that was pretty yeah, totally, interesting. absolutely. Yeah, I actually don't have a lot of criticisms about the design itself. I just think maybe it wasn't used to its fullest yeah. potential. If these are the only two Tony Awards that this show got, those are well deserved. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So. All of this to say, out of 10 playbills, how many monkeys do you give that whole sort of design scheme? Eight monkeys out of 10 playbills. And that's because I liked the blood thing so much that I'm going to forgive the handheld mics. Okay. How about you? I'm going to go with an eight as well. Yeah. Didn't have as strong feelings about the handhelds as you did. Right. I think I, I just, it made me excited to maybe think that it isn't as bad as I thought it would be after first listen yeah i know what you mean so it kind of makes me want to see it which is weird because i didn't think i would ever say that <laughs> let's talk performances <laughs> sorry i get so excited about this because can i just start with a story yes so my favorite moment is like pretty much the first moment of the show yeah. where benjamin walker mm-hmm. who plays patrick bateman yep stands up on stage and is like hi I'm Patrick Bateman. I'm 26 years old. And I'm like, no, you're not. You're lying to me. You're in your late 30s, Yeah, like you, (laughs) please do not lie. We see life on you. I like Benjamin Walker a lot in life. Um, I'm a big, big fan of Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, um, which is a show that we will potentially be able to talk about Mm -hmm. on this podcast at some point. I think he's very funny in that. And since then, I've always had a soft spot for him. And I think he's got a rocking voice. He's just got an awesome voice. I really enjoy it. That you don't get to really hear in this show, actually. No. So this brings me to... Yeah. I don't love Benjamin Walker in this. I agree. Yep. Is there anyone else you can picture in this role? Oh, you're challenging my uh, my knowledge of, of Broadway star trivia. I think it was interesting in general. I think it was an interesting choice to have like a not huge star. Mm-hmm. Like in the UK, they did stunt casting a little bit and got Matt Smith. Yeah. I think that might have been the way to go for this as well. Gotten like um, someone a little stuntier. Might have helped them last a bit longer. And might have been, um, might have even turned into something a little more interesting with any luck. Do you think they were actually kind of trying to do that with him? Because he had a bit of a something happening in film. He did. He had Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. Okay, that's not what I want to talk about, but we do have to go there. <laughs> but he had that, and he had, he was actually supposed to be in an X-Men movie, but then he, this. but yeah. he took bloody, bloody Andrew Jackson. Yeah, he was supposed to be Beast in um, yeah, First Class. which I kind of think is a really nice thing that yeah. he chose the stage. <laughs> and chose such a, like a bizarre project as right. Andrew Jackson, and a project that also flopped. Right. Yeah. And he also was married to one of Meryl Streep's daughters. I knew this. At the I, time. I too visited his Wikipedia page today <laughs> as, I was, as I was being bored by the musical. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Producer Daphne chiming in. Did you just say Wikipedia? <laughs> Wikipedia? Is that not how it's pronounced? No. <laughs> I'm not sure how we come back from that. Okay. <laughs> so, anyways, that's... That's maybe what they were trying. Maybe maybe yeah. it did feel like a bit of stunt casting. I think in the middle of the night tonight, someone's going to occur to me. Like, what about John Gallagher? 
Because he knows that right. Duncan Sheik style. I wonder about that, about either John Gallagher or um the other or Jonathan Groff. Yeah. Like the two uh-huh. the two cuties from um Spring Awakening. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's think about this. Yeah. We'll revisit it. Anyways. So Benjamin Walker. Yeah. We think he's okay. Yeah. He gets bonus points for me because I really like Andrew Jackson. And this reminded right. me that Andrew Jackson existed. So, so nothing as it relates to this project specifically. Not at all. <laughs> but he doesn't bother you. <laughs> no. And may even inspire you. Yeah. No, he's not. I don't okay. think he's good in this. Let's, I'll, okay. I'll say that. Yeah. Jennifer, how did you feel about her performance? Better. As far as an actual performance goes, it, like I said, it's frustrating because this character gets such a short end of the stick. Mm-hmm. It's a really frustrating thing to have expanded this um, this woman character simply for her to be, well, I wonder what Patrick was like as a kid. Yes, but that did give Alice Ripley an opportunity to sing with her next to normal daughter again. So <laughs> There's one scene when Alice Ripley's in like, what, 15 minutes of this musical all told? Oh, sure. Let's maybe say 20 <laughs> minutes. Where she's dancing with, she ends up dancing with the ensemble for some reason, for like her one part with the ensemble. And the ensemble's all doing like this jerky movement thing. Mm-hmm. And Alice Ripley's just not doing it at all. <laughs> she's just doing her own thing entirely. <laughs> and there's like oh, 10 ensemble her. members in very much interpreting it the same way. And Alice Ripley's just in her own world. <laughs> oh, I love her so much. <laughs> but like in a formation with everyone yeah. else. <laughs> like she's there, but she's not there. Yeah. yeah. How do you feel about uh, Jen Demiano? Demiano? I I actually like her a lot as yeah. a performer. I do too. I like her voice. It's very yeah. nice. She has a lot of control. Yeah. Good pop sound. I yeah. mean, I guess that's she's right really for this project. what she's been doing for her whole career, pretty much. So yeah. makes sense that she would be good at it. I think I share your feelings about just that character specifically not having an opportunity to be fleshed out outside of Patrick. And in the film too, it's kind of that same thing, right? So, and in the book, so you can't, there's nothing really that they probably could have done. Yeah. I think they did the best they could and she did as well, you know? Yeah, I think she definitely did. And I think I can't find fault with the performance. Yeah. I think it's a nice performance. I'd even go so far as to say maybe the nicest performance in the show. Okay. I actually might argue with you. Okay, go. Because who do you like? The ensemble. Yeah. And the reason I like the ensemble is because they got through the whole thing without making fun of it once. (laughs) They did it seriously. They did it with full commitment. Only laughing backstage. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like, and they committed physically, emotionally, like fully committed in the story. Whatever the story was, they were there for it. And that is one of my favorite things to watch. There's some fabulous ensemble work here. There really is. So. I do want yeah, to <laughs> I do want to call that out because no in none of the reviews I've read like no one ever shouts out the ensemble and I think this is the perfect example of great ensemble work. I agree. I'd agree with that 100%. Cool. Um Alice Ripley. <laughs> More Alice? No, I was kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so out of 10 playbills, yep. how many monkeys do you give the performances? Benjamin Walker, four. Mm-hmm. Jen Damiano, seven. Ensemble, nine. Yeah, I think Alice I... Ripley exists in a different rating category. <laughs> it's Alice... on a whole other scale. Alice Ripley, five out of five mountains that she misses. <laughs> oh, that's a nice one, <laughs> right? Paul. I agree 
with you. I would say Benjamin Walker might actually be a three for me. Yeah, I can dig that. Jennifer Damiano, a six. And then yeah. ensemble, like an eight and a half or nine. Yeah. Absolutely. So, Paul, my favorite question yep. at this point in the program is to ask you about the concept yep. and whether you think that American Psycho, the novel, then the movie, needed to then become a musical. There are, in my opinion, two great classic horror musicals in the, uh, in the musical theater canon. And there's some other um, musicals that have, at some point or another, um, been horror-ish or have been horror musical but aren't quite as good or um, have been... The point is two, um, two great ones, and they kind of occupy opposite ends of the spectrum. One is um, Stephen Sondheim's Sweeney Todd, argued by many people to be one of the greatest musicals ever written. And the other one is Alan Menken and Howard Ashman's Little Shop of Horrors. I, I did not even see that one coming yeah. as a uh, in that genre. I didn't Absolutely. even... Absolutely, well, because it's a super B-horror movie send-up. Right. Um, and it's very heavy satire. Um, but in my, yeah. and, it, and it's also great. It's a fantastic musical. And so in my opinion, these are the two, and they exist on opposite ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Sweeney Todd is serious and dour to a fault. And Little Shop of Horrors is playful and fun and is never serious for one moment. But at the end, you still cry. You still cry when Audrey dies. That's true. Spoiler alert. <laughs> so can the concept of a horror musical work? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Could a concept of an American Psycho musical work? Yes, absolutely. Does this work? Not even a little bit. <laughs> I don't think this should be a musical. I agree. I do not think that we needed this musical. No. There will be some people out there that disagree, that say, I needed this yeah. musical. It just the trifecta of having a book to access, yeah. a movie to access, and then a musical. I don't know. If you're one of those people, please reach out. Absolutely. Let I us just want to know. I want to know. Why you needed why. more American Psycho in your life. Yeah. I mean, any show that needs to start like a GoFundMe kind of makes me nervous already. Wasn't it a West End GoFundMe? Oh, yeah. West End. It was End. To, right. to, um, to raise money to actually put up the West End production. They um, started a GoFundMe campaign. And I guess like you're, you know, you're appealing to the folks who love it. Yeah. You know, they love the book. They love the movie. They're like, oh, I'd love to see this on stage too. So I guess that's who you're trying to access when you're starting something like that. It's this weird thing. I'm really glad you brought up silence earlier in the um, episode. Hmm. Um, And I was very candid. I don't care for silence one bit. I almost wish... You would have taken a brilliant movie like Silence of the Lambs and attempted to make like a Sweeney Todd style mm. horror musical out of that and gone hard silence with American Psycho. Yes. That's the way I think this could have worked. Yeah. You know what I mean? As a parody of musicals that take themselves too seriously, we took American Psycho. What a terrible one to be <laughs> a musical. Instead, they kind of hedged their bets mm-hmm. and decided that we needed to feel sympathy for Patrick Bateman at some point. Yeah, that was the other thing. They yeah. tried to humanize him so much. Yeah. And they talk a lot about that. There's this uh, Rolling Stone article. Yeah, yeah. They talk about humanizing him in this music. And Benjamin Walker talks about, I want to quote him because it's really good. He says, 
I cannot, as the actor, look at Patrick and deny that there's a little bit of Patrick Bateman in all of us. And I was like, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't like that. <laughs> I don't like that. But they talk about, yeah, about humanizing him through this music and this show. Sexy psych- uh, sociopath. I don't know. And that's a, like the, the sexy sociopath thing is a little bit what American Psycho is, but it makes it makes fun of that. You know what right. I mean? There's the scene in the movie he's um he's having sex with someone and he's like checking himself out in the mirror. Yeah. And like flexing his muscles. Right. And you're like, what a freaking goober. What's he yeah. <laughs> What's that about? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah. So out of ten playbills, how many monkeys are you giving this as a concept? This is flawed from the conceptual level. Uh-huh. So even an incredible design, a fascinating book writer, a fascinating composer, who as we discussed both made um significant mistakes Mm -hmm. direction and choreography that we can't find any serious fault with Mm. and performances we didn't dislike any of the performances Mm. so i'm forced to conclude as we go down the list it's flawed from conception right so too how about you i agree and i think this brings us to the final ultimate grading system (laughs) (laughs) if we didn't have enough scales here's another one yes as with any good opinion podcast, we need to arrive at a consensus consensus at some point. So for us, the consensus we want to arrive at is, is this musical a flop? Is it a secret bop? Or do we need to make it stop? What that means is, as a flop, is it just a meh musical? Just kind of a fart that petered out? Is it actually a secret bop? It's actually a great musical that, for reasons outside of its control, didn't make it past the 100 performance mark on Broadway. Or is it make it stop, which means... This musical should never see the light of day again. This is an unmitigated disaster. Jill, where do you land? I'm torn. Yeah? Between flop and make it stop. I'm not torn. This musical's a make it stop. It's gotta go. (laughs) You don't think there's any possible way that another version, another production could make it better? I would look forward to doing... American Psycho in concert with half the music. Okay. I would love to do that, but I would only do half the music. So a chopped up version. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. So yeah, it is a make it stop I for think, you. I think it's a make it stop for me. Okay. Where's your, where does your wavering come in? Honestly, it's the design. Like yeah. it really saved it for me. Mm-hmm. The design was beautiful. Yeah. And that's really what saved it. How would you have felt pain... 150 to $300 to go see this in New York. Well, I would have bought my ticket on... At the TKTS booth. Yeah, <laughs> the booth. So I wouldn't have gone higher than 90 But right. even 90 I would have been like, well, I saw it. But guess yeah. what else I saw for $90? Finding Neverland. So my <laughs> MasterCard knows no bounds. <laughs> this... Musical also had a particularly difficult Tony year to play against, and they got almost entirely shut out from the Tonys. Mm-hmm. Um, this was an especially hard year. Um, we looked it up beforehand. This was the, the year that Hamilton was finally eligible. Yes. So we had a bunch of great revivals as well yeah. that year. Mm-hmm. Okay, let me see. So as far as shows go... I remember, I remember it being a weird year because there was no question Hamilton was going to win. Right. So it was Hamilton... Bright Star, School of Rock, Shuffle Along, and Waitress. Wow. That's right. Shuffle Along and Waitress. Yeah. So yeah. a pretty 
like School of Rock. Fiddler was Fiddler, had a revival. There's a Fiddler revival, Color, the Color Purple. purple. Yeah. She Loves Me and Spring Awakening revival. And the Deaf West revival. Yes. What a cool year. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Jeez, the Duncan Cheek wasn't even mad. Mm-hmm. You know, he was doing oh, just yeah. fine for himself. He's like, I'm good. <laughs> I've got this other one. This other um, iron in the fire here. So just like happened with Amelie, um, they got the um, almost entirely shut out. Mm-hmm. Um, they got their design awards, but those aren't going to bring a, an enormous audience like, right. an act, like one of the big awards is. And then they closed, they closed? in June, bef- yep. I think right before or right around the Tony time. Yep, absolutely. Which is super tragic. Yeah, it would as we said before, it is sad. There's no no joy in that. A lot mm-hmm. of people um, moving on to new jobs, and that's tough. Jeez, what a wild year that was. So wild. Do you remember that? The last time I was in New York was right before Hamilton opened on Broadway. I missed it by like a week. It was very disappointing to me. We have one more musical to review this month in our um, Halloween spooktacular. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Monkeys and Playbills inaugural season. <laughs> That's really funny. That (laughs) phrasing. I like it a lot. What is that musical that we're going to be addressing next time? It is the first collaboration from a legendary pop songwriting team. It is an adaptation of a beloved intellectual property, a novel series that is beloved by people the world over. Mm -hmm. It is the musical Lestat, the adaptation of the Anne Rice books. The Vampire Lestat, an interview with a vampire with music and lyrics by Elton John and Bernie Taupin. I am so outside my comfort zone with that. And I'm excited about that. I am. It's going to push me to open my mind a little bit. Have you ever read an Anne Rice book? Nope. Neither have I. Um, I think one of us might have to take one for the team. I'll do it. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> I like to read. Yeah. I've read an Anne Rule book. Okay. I'm going to listen I'm going to listen to Elton John. <laughs> oh yeah. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Thank you for listening. We received so much wonderful feedback, but it's always helpful if you can rate and review and like and subscribe and email and call and carrier pigeon that does an enormous amount of good and let us know what you want us to take a look at remember as long as it lasted 100 performances or fewer on broadway from opening night to closing we can take a look at it and we would love to and yes we promise we'll take a look at it absolutely whether we'll talk about it that's another that's story another story <laughs> all right i think that's it thank you did we do it Jeff? we did it have great. have a great day bye bye Hi everyone, this is producer Daphne speaking. Thank you all so much for joining us for Monkeys and Playbills, the show where we take a look at Broadway musicals that had 100 performances or fewer before closing. If you have a show that you'd like us to cover, you can get in touch with us at monkeysandplaybillspod on Instagram or by emailing monkeysandplaybillspod at gmail.com. The intro song for this episode was American Psycho by Treble Charger. Original music for the show is provided by Paul DeGurse, and the show is produced and edited by Daphne Finlayson. Thank you all so much for listening, and join us next week where we take on Lestat. <laughs>